Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Mueller dazed and damaged in Washington's hearing today, Iran's calculated aggression, and we have national security expert from the Center for Security Policy, Claire Lopez, joining us. And then Mueller's unjust double standard and his prejudice on parade. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This morning, millions of Americans were riveted to their television watching the testimony in the House Judiciary Committee of Robert Mueller, the special counsel who submitted the Mueller report about the alleged Russia-Trump collusion. And this morning's hearing involved questioning by both House Democrats and House Republicans, uh, members of the House Judiciary Committee. We're going to talk about many points later in the show. I want to hit just a, f a few things in this uh, first five today. Number one, Robert Mueller appeared to use a com many commentaries words, uh, befuddled, confused, uh, had a very hard time with the questions, frequently referred to his report. In fact, he often said in response to questions, I stand by the report or if that's what's in the report. And there was actually um, a... Um, a willingness of many of the people asking questions to refer to that. They would just read him something from the report. He'd say, yes, no. He did not appear particularly alert. Uh, he also, um, to be clear, the hearing was designed to be, was dedicated to being limited to the content of his report. So it was mostly since the report has been out and pretty much everyone has read it, or virtually all of it, who, who wants to read it, it was really just an effort for both sides to make their talking points out of what the Mueller report actually said related to the trust, uh, Trump Russia collusion. I will say that one of the just stellar moments in this hearing today was uh, the questioning done by Texas Congressman um, Louis Gohmert, Congressman Gohmert, and I, I'm going to ask Matt, the wonderful producer, to quick play that clip of Louis Gohmert, and then I'll come back and tell you why it was so great. First, let me ask a unanimous consent, Mr. Chairman, to submit uh, this article, Robert Mueller unmasked for the record. Without objection. Now, Mr. Mueller, who wrote the nine-minute comments you read at your May 29th press conference? Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Okay, so that's what I thought. You didn't write it. Okay. You know, he just, there are many other points that were made, and we're going to play other clips later in the show. But the one thing I want to mention about Congressman Gomer's question, what he's referring to is this booklet, which I happened to get from him at, at an event here in Texas. It's called Robert Mueller Unmasked by Congressman Louis Gomert. If you ever want a real window on all of the moral flaws and failings of Robert Mueller, I urge you to try to get this book, little booklet. It was by uh, Congressman Gomert. I think you can call his office and request a copy. But it really was a great stroke to get it into the record and today hearing. Uh, second was, I wanted to say that Mueller, Robert Mueller, during this questioning, was asked by, um, I'm going to tell you who the person was, asked by a particular uh, member of Congress, um, he asked about, and then he was reading, he, this Congress member, reading from the report, saying, the opposition research firm that was hired by Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee to dig up dirt on Trump. So he, this congressman, um, uh, Steve uh, Shabbat, I guess it is, C-H-A-B-O-T or Chabot, he asked that question. He's reading from the report. He says specifically, the opposition research firm that was hired by Hillary Clinton campaign, blah, blah, to dig up dirt on Trump. And he said to Robert Mueller, and that's Fusion GPS, right? And Mueller looked like he'd never heard of Fusion GPS. He said his answer was, I'm not familiar with that. Like he had never heard of Fusion GPS. You don't have to be a student of this incredible um, scene unfolding in Washington relating to this Trump-Russia collusion hoax to know the name Fusion GPS, but that was actually Robert Mueller's answer. Uh, did not know. Other thing in closing this first five today that came out of the hearing, we'll come back to much more later in the show, but the other closing point was Robert Mueller, within the first 30 minutes of this testimony, was asked in Congress, before the House Judiciary Committee, was asked by Georgia Republican Doug Collins at the very beginning whether his exhaustive, invasive, intense 
probe was in any way curtailed or stopped or hindered by the president or the White House? And Mueller's answer was no. Hearing should have ended right then. But there's much more to talk about uh, on this. This is really uh, among, as I've said many, many times on this show, the Mueller investigation, the allegation of Trump-Russia collusion, the way it's been handled in Washington. This is one of the most significant and important events in American history, significant more important events involving uh, corruption inside the government and the determination by those who want to seek truth uh, in this uh, entire episode. Uh, we got a little more truth unfolded this morning. There's a lot more to go. It's very important in America, ultimately, that we hold responsible those who engage in the egregious conduct that appears to have happened inside the DOJ, CIA, and the FBI. More on that later in the show. And that, my friends, is my first five for today. We're turning now to talk to uh, Claire Lopez. She has been a guest on our show many times. I'm grateful every time she comes on. I frequently want to tell her I just take notes while she's talking, but Claire Lopez is the Vice President for Research and Analysis at the Center for Security Policy. Uh, she's held many other prestigious positions in the national security world. She's a former CIA um, career operations officer, but she is a national expert in, on uh, national security, and in particular, a well-recognized expert on the country of Iran and Iranian politics and geopolitics. So I want to ask her to come on today. I asked her to join us today to talk about what is happening in the uh, Strait of Hormuz, the Iranian um, military seizing British tankers. And I wanted to have her talk about why they're doing it, why it's happening now, and what, if anything, should be America's response. So I believe we have Claire online. Hi, Claire. Yes. Hi, Debbie, and thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be with you as always. Love to have you join us. Thanks so much. Well, I want to start, we're going to be talking about the Iranians seizing these um, tankers, but I want to start with just a tiny little bit of a geography lesson, because I think in America, people hear Strait of Hormuz, and they're thinking, why, why, why is that so relevant? So the wonderful producer, Matt, has a map that I sent him. I want to have it up on the screen. I don't know if you all can see it very well on the screen, but can you tell our listeners why is the Strait of Hormuz? such a hotly contested area? Well, it is one of the eight most important strategic straits, that is, narrow waterways in the entire world. Um, it is very narrow, um, shipping lanes as narrow as two miles each way uh, going in and out of the Strait of Hormuz, overall uh, perhaps 22 miles in width uh, at its widest point. Uh, the Strait of Hormuz um, uh, is the entry-exit point uh, between the Persian Gulf, um, up, uh, you know, on which border uh, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, and other Gulf states. Um, and then, if, if you can picture this leading out of, that would be to the east, out of the Persian Gulf, you have to go through this narrow, curving um, U-shaped or hill-shaped, depending on which way you're looking at it, a waterway leading out into the Gulf of Oman and then from there to the Arabian Sea. But the point about why it's so important is that a huge percentage um, of the world's oil uh, and petroleum products passes out through that strait. Um, if you think about all the oil producers clustered in and around uh, the Persian Gulf. I've just named a few, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, also add in Qatar, add the United Arab Emirates, and of course Saudi Arabia. Um, all of them have to get that oil out somewhere to customers. Yes, some of it goes by pipeline, which could be overland, but an awful lot of it travels by oil tanker ships out through the Persian Gulf, out through the Strait of Hormuz, and then on to uh, the bigger oceans. That was very helpful because I do, as I said, I think people wonder why is this such a contested area. So now we have that. It's a vitally important shipping lane for tankers containing oil. So in the last few weeks, the Iran, the country of Iran, has seized oil tankers, two British oil tankers. And so I want to get at, if, if you, because you're just such an expert in all things related to Iran and what their strategic mindset is and what their mission is, why is this happening now? Why do you think the Iranians were see were, were these were these tankers 
in Iranian waters? Is that really the problem that Iran was being a bit defensive, or is it is there some other motive that you see in Iran's conduct? Well, th there are some specifics of international law regarding um, uh, waters off the shores of, of countries, and I don't want to get into all those specifics because they're very technical. How many miles this way, that way, continental shelf, and things like that. Suffice to say uh, that there is disagreement um, in the world and among uh, the nation states bordering the Persian Gulf about which regulations apply, which international conventions apply. But never mind, the, the principle of the matter is free passage um, of, of international commercial shipping uh, through international waters. Just, just we'll keep that in mind. Um, why now? Well, um, as we all know, um, President Trump uh, withdrew the United States from uh, the Iran nuclear deal, <coughs> the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA, uh, in May of 2018. And along with that withdrawal from this unbelievably, incredibly awful deal, um, which, which had absolutely zero effect on the Iranian clandestine nuclear weapons program or its ballistic missile program or its support for terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, um, along with that withdrawal came a reimposition of sanctions, U.S. sanctions, which are especially important because of the dominant position of the U.S. economy in the world, uh, the position of the dollar uh, as, as the, the currency of, of trade and commerce. We have the ability to impose crippling sanctions, and this is what President Trump has done, um, not just against Iran, but also against any entities, countries, companies, firms that would do business with Iran. And for a while, there were a number of waivers that were granted to certain countries, um, uh, for uh, trade in, in uh, oil products and in certain metals, um, but those were uh, withdrawn uh, more recently, this year, in 2019. The net effect has been uh, a crippling of the Iranian economy because its main export product is petroleum products. Yes, they've got carpets and pistachios, but <laughs> for all intents and purposes, its most important export uh, is oil, and it has been unable to do that because the U.S. will has is going to sanction uh, anyone that would agree to buy that oil um, in the world. And the withdrawal of the sanctions, uh, the withdrawal of the of the, of the of two of the final remaining waivers, tightened that even further. Result has been a real. Um, devastating effect on the Iranian economy, unfortunately for the long-suffering Iranian people, first and foremost. But the importance of it is aimed at the leadership. And most recently, um, President Trump and his administration imposed uh, direct sanctions against the supreme leader himself and some of his top IRGC, that's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, commanders, uh, sanctions on the movement <clears throat> of their money. Now, we might know, uh, your listeners probably do know, that, that these top leadership figures in Iran, um, they're deeply devout Muslims, yeah, but, but they're also very deeply corrupt, and they have amassed fortunes in the billions and tens of billions, lots of which is stashed in overseas bank accounts like in Switzerland and other places. Well, these new sanctions that Trump imposed just some weeks ago um, impeded the ability of that leadership, the Supreme Leader himself, the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, and his top guns, his thugs, impeded their ability to access and to move those funds. That was really crippling. Long way short of saying uh, it is the, the, the net effect of all of these things, I think, that has pushed the Iranian uh, leadership to the brink, uh, to a point of frustration, uh, that they are now lashing out uh, in every direction, um, and most particularly, though, against uh, shipping, commercial shipping in the Gulf, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, through the Strait of Hormuz, uh, and even outside of the Strait of Hormuz, because some of the ships uh, attacked with limpet mines by the IRGC uh, last month, no, I'm sorry, two months ago in May 2019, 
We're actually uh, in the uh, Gulf of Oman. That is uh, through, past the Strait of Hormuz outwards. So um, they are lashing out, is, is what I mean to say, um, and attacking the Saudis as well. And their targets are specifically oil targets, oil shipping, uh, and in Saudi Arabia, their oil pipeline, pumping stations. Important thing, I'll just add this one last thing about that. The attacks in Saudi Arabia mid-May 2019 mm-hmm. against their uh, oil pipelines pumping stations in the center of the Arabian Peninsula, in the heart, the middle of Saudi Arabia, were launched not out of Yemen or by the Houthi rebels there that are supported by Iran, as everybody first thought. No. That attack was launched by Iraqi Shiite terror militias, sometimes called the Hashdashabi, or also the uh, popular mobilization units, PMUs, some different names for them, but Shiite terror militias in <coughs> Iraq. Uh, specifically um, for that attack, it's thought that the Qatar Hezbollah was responsible. So these are all ways that, that Iran is striking out um, in its desperation and frustration. And let's understand, the regime is fragile. The regime is beset within the country by massive and continuing protests and demonstrations and labor strikes all over the country. So all these things together are are ratcheting up pressure on the regime um, that is now lashing out. Claire, do you think the reason that the Iranians in particular chose these British vessels to seize recently, is this anything that they did in your view, strategically targeting America, thinking that somehow America and Britain are such allies, UK are such allies, that maybe that the UK's unhappiness about these vessels being seized will somehow give uh, impact America, make America more likely to change things. Is there any strategic relevance to that they were British tankers? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's certainly part of it. But more specifically, it's because the British... Um, uh, through uh, Gibraltar uh, some weeks ago, yeah. seized an Iranian ship that they claimed was transporting oil in violation of sanctions to uh, the Damascus regime of Bashar al-Assad. Uh, okay. And the Brits, <coughs> through Gibraltar, um, and off the, 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 um, the Strait of Gibraltar, seized a, 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 an Iranian ship. Um, and this very clearly was, was done... Uh, the multiple two-time seizure of, of British vessels or stopping of their passage in any case, um, clearly in response to that earlier seizure, tit for tat in a way, if you will. But yes, to the things that you mentioned as well, um, I think the Iranians, as well as all of us know, that, that Britain is in the midst um, of um, a political transfer of power uh, in uh, the in terms of their prime minister that Boris Johnson has just succeeded uh, Theresa May as prime minister of uh, of Britain and uh, that that obviously the the British uh, you know are um, uh, focused on on uh, internal political matters at a point like this in time um, and they may have thought that the British lacked um, the willpower to to stand up to the Iranians uh, that they could, uh, like the rest of the cowardly Europeans, um, <coughs> you know, do what they wanted to to the Brits, and 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 they wouldn't they wouldn't strike back. Um, but to their credit, and and I'll have to say, to the British credit, um, not only now do they have uh, Boris Johnson, um, a very solid fellow with a stern, um, well-formed um, set of vertebrae, um, <laughs> and in 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 uh, office as prime minister. Yeah. Um, but their foreign minister, or I should say foreign secretary, Jeremy Hunt, um, has also called uh, for a European naval mission to include uh, not just uh, British ships, uh, military ships, naval ships, um, but calling on other, other European uh, powers uh, like uh, the Dutch, of course, the Maersk shipping line. Um, I, I didn't mean Dutch, I meant Danish. Mm-hmm. Maersk shipping line um, out of Copenhagen. Uh, and others in, in in Europe with with you know large commercial shipping operations calling on them to join together uh, in a joint uh, effort to provide military escorts uh, to the commercial shipping. So uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, but uh, I, the the intent of the Iranians probably was to try to split um, 
you know, the, the Europeans of uh, less sterner stuff than our president, Donald Trump, uh, away from the U.S. policy, hard-line uh, policy against the Iranian regime. But, um, you know, the more the Iranian regime attacks and strikes out uh, <clears throat> against the Europeans, I think the more the Europeans are going to see uh, exactly what, what that regime is all about, um, and uh, begin to adjust their thinking, if not their spines. So, Claire, what, if anything, has been President Trump's response, or should it be? Should the, the America and President Trump be in the middle of trying to help UK resolve this, or what, what should we be doing about this? Well, it's 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 our forces too. It's it's our shipping yeah. and and our um, you know vessels um, over in the region as well as uh, our uh, drones. Uh, you know, one of it, which was shot down at, at um, uh, an earlier point by the Iranians. Um, so, I mean, we're very much involved as well. Um, and and we are allied with our NATO partners very closely. And that would include um, in the Persian Gulf. And so uh, I think the, the intent is to stand together with our European partners. And that's that's exactly the way it ought to be. I like that very much. I was going to mention for our listeners, if you hadn't read anything about this, it read us a little bit about how uh, aggressive this conduct was by the Iranians who did board and, and seize this uh, this tanker, um, in, in this ship in the Strait of Hormuz. You know, it's one thing if you were just asserting in a defensive but not alarmed way, Iran, you'd be saying, you know, you guys, you might have involuntarily, mistakenly moved into uh, waters that Iran claims, but it was a very aggressive takeover. They described uh, more like commando conduct in the way the Iranians did this. And then there also, I don't know if any reaction to that, and the other one was, I saw that Rouhani uh, is hinting at the idea that maybe there could be a swap for the seized tankers. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, no such um, mention has been made yet, but you're absolutely right about the, uh, the warlike act of war is what it was, seizure of that British tanker, the most recent one, um, uh, in which action uh, a, a number of IRGC uh, naval fast boats surrounded the tanker, a helicopter uh, flew overhead, and from it rappelled down uh, commandos in full, full military gear with automatic rifles pointing at the the commercial, you know, merchant seamen on, on this oil tanker, and they filmed it all. This is the important part. They filmed it all and then displayed the film, uh, you know, published the film online so that everybody could see um, how they had uh, taken over this ship. Um, but again, I think that may have worked uh, in the opposite direction. Um, rather than showing, you know, that uh, the British left this tanker undefended, unescorted, which they did, uh, but rather that there is absolutely no cause for swift boats and helicopters and and uh, commandos in, in, in full battle rattle, um, you know, rappelling out of that helicopter onto the decks of a merchant ship with, with, with automatic rifles uh, leveled at, at, at seamen. That, I think, the Iranians probably, because of their mentality, um, they may have failed to realize how shocking uh, an image that was and how sobering um, uh, it, 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 I hope, has been you know, for the Europeans uh, watching it. Uh, instead of, of making them cower even further, um, and begging the United States, because this is the whole objective, right? Begging the United States to get back into the uh, the nuclear deal, which, of course, the Trump administration has no intention of doing, especially now that Iran has uh, breached uh, that deal in, in numbers of ways. But if they thought that that was going to be the result, um, it uh, it looks like it's not. And and that's to the credit of these of these European um, leaders, um, you know, hopefully. Uh, who, who were appropriately shocked by, by those images. Appropriately shocked is right. And I have to, I'm, Claire, I know every time we speak, I'm so grateful for all your information and your read on things and your knowledge of the region and knowledge of the mindset of the Islamic leaders in Iran, the mullahs. And so um, I thank you so much. And I actually have one last quick thing. I know that 
at the time President Trump was a candidate Trump and became President Trump, much of the worry of the, or at least expressed worry by the American left was that he was a little bit too um, hot-headed or too, you know, they feared the conduct he would engage in with respect to foreign policy, that he may not uh, be um, as subtle or, or mindful or strategic as he should be, but you feel that the way America is responding now to this is perfectly appropriate, is that right? Well, it is, but I would add this as well. Um, there comes a point when kinetic acts of war, uh, like the seizure of commercial shipping, like uh, the, the attacks with limpet mines on uh, the hulls of, of commercial shipping, like the shooting down uh, of surveillance drones, not armed, by the way, surveillance drones, um, must be met likewise with kinetic uh, a kinetic response otherwise the appearance of weakness i think will only fuel further aggression <clears throat> on the part of this regime now i think the most important thing that we could be doing at this moment but to the best of my knowledge are not is supporting the iranian people themselves uh, the women the students the labor uh, strikers um, the ethnic minorities, all of whom are in the streets uh, of, of Iran, protesting, chanting, by the way, death to Khamenei, death yeah. to the Supreme Leader, yep. and, and spray painting this all on, and graffiti on walls, supporting them, however we might, uh, quietly, because this is for the Iranian people to do, but to help them attain their own liberty, help them to get rid of this regime, not just the mullahs, but the guns and the thugs that keep it in power, those Iranian people deserve our help with doing that. Claire Lopez, I cannot thank you enough. Love every time you can join us. Thank you so much for being available today to talk about the situation in the Strait and of Hormuz. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you, folks. And again, if you want to go to the website, this, the Center for Security Policy.org, full of information, always full of the latest uh, on national security of all kinds, and certainly on this incident with Iran and on the many appearances Claire Lopez makes in national media. You can listen to interviews she does all over the place. She's just a, she's just a gift of a, a resource for Americans to understand better the international scene and especially the Iranian uh, world and um, the Iranian mission of the Iranian government to be um, as an Islamic expansionist government. So now I want to turn to what has been probably the top of the news all day long um, in most of the um, uh, news sources in this country and it turns to it is about the testimony today of, by Robert Mueller in front of the House Judiciary Committee relating to his Mueller report. I mentioned a little bit about it earlier uh, today in the first five and there are so many ways to go on this and I will tell you that I um, I want to start by an overarching observation and then hit on two particular points that were made that were really uh, quite poignant about it. So I mentioned earlier Robert Mueller did not appear particularly alert, particularly astute. He was frequently gave the answer, which is well within his rights to say is I stand by the language of my report or whatever. If it's in the report, it's right. Uh, did not he expressed no understanding what the Fusion GPS is, which everyone I think knows. It was the organization, the smear campaign organization, first hired by Hillary Clinton and then funded by the DNC that essentially created, hired somebody else to create the Russian dossier. And so uh, that was a particularly low moment uh, for Robert Mueller in this hearing. But my overarching point I want to make before I dive into the two specifics is this. You likely know that the, okay, two overarching points. First, you likely know the story we talked about just a few days ago related to Seth Rich, and he was the employee of the Democrat National Committee, and he was the person who uh, is believed to have been the one who actually did all of the a removal of or copying of the DNC's emails, the Hillary Clinton campaign emails that were ultimately given to Julian Assange and published by WikiLeaks. That was the whole Russia-Trump collusion that was one avenue or aspect of it was the uh, allegation by the many on the left that was the Russians who had hacked into the DNC servers, download these emails and shared them with Julian Assange who put them out on WikiLeaks 
But the big allegation this week, it, it was out a year ago or more than a year ago, but it was uh, buttressed and, and enforced this week by a piece of litigation, a defamation lawsuit filed by a local uh, Texas person, Ed Batowski, uh, alleging that he was told firsthand or essentially firsthand that it was Seth Rich who was the one, the DNC employee who got those emails and shared them uh, with Julian Assange and then was murdered um, in Washington, D.C., remaining an unsolved murder. And many are, suspect that there were people who didn't like his having taken those emails as uh, the ones who were motivated to uh, bring about his murder. So that particular aspect of the story is not was not part of the hearing today. And I'll be really clear, I listened from early in the morning when the hearing started until I just simply had to turn to getting ready for this show. But as far as I know, there was no testimony today or questions or commentary of any kind about whether or not there was uh, investigation or should have been investigation about who really leaked the DNC emails, who really got the emails off of the DNC server and shared them uh, with the WikiLeaks. That, so far as I know, was not discussed, and that was not really uh, the only app or portion of it that may have been relevant to have asked Robert Mueller about was would have been something along the line of, you know, your report and indeed Attorney General Barr's summary of your report just simply accepts as a given that the Russians hacked into the DNC server. Did you, Robert Mueller, do any investigating yourself? Did you ever ask to have the FBI look at that server directly? Why is it was okay that the DNC never permitted any federal agency to look at that server, to do the forensic analysis, to figure out how those emails were really taken away from the DNC? That was never discussed as far as I know and may have been considered outside the scope of this hearing. But the other uh, kind of long avenue or the uh, basis for this entire Trump-Russia collusion thing, beside that, the, the hacked emails and who did that and who was, whether someone was supposedly helping the Russians do that, and, or even if the Russians, if they had done it, which I don't believe they did, I think Seth Rich did. But the other whole aspect of this, the other kind of predicate, which was the term that Attorney General Barr used over and over in his testimony, saying he was going to look into, not testimony today, previous testimony, Barr said he's going to look into what is the predicate, the basis, the reason that the entire Trump-Russia collusion allegation was believed? How did it make its way to the FBI? How is it that the FBI ended up um, doing an investigation, believing or uh, claiming to believe that there was Trump-Russia collusion? Because many people have now put together the pieces and realized the FBI and actually behind them, even the CIA and John Brennan seem to have been part of the very beginning of setting up the Trump-Russia collusion hoax by planting people to talk to relevant characters connected to the Trump campaign and having those conversations lead the uh, the conversations would happen, they'd be pl information planted with someone connected to the Trump campaign, and then there would be um, a report back from some other agent who was only hearing from somebody who'd been told by some of the CIA planted that there was this Trump-Russia collusion. Well, that was the big aspect that the Republicans are trying to get to today. I mean, the hearing was about simply, what does the Mueller report say? And, you know, what did you find in your lengthy and expensive investigation? Republicans kept trying to get asked several times about it essentially the predicate. How'd you get here? Why is it you, well, you didn't look into this? And that was really not exactly the scope of the hearing. The hearing was about the report, but the frustration of the Republicans who, you know, don't have the majority in the House is that we're talking about something, the Mueller report that was the investigation into whether Trump colluded with the Russians, and then secondarily, whether Trump obstructed the investigation into uh, the alleged collusion. That was really what the, the uh, Mueller report was about. And, and Republicans and truly millions of Americans are very bothered by the fact that there aren't enough people in Washington asking, how do you even get to the point when you end up having the, um, the FBI think there was something going on meriting the beginning of investigation? On that particular question, I want to play the uh, question this morning that was asked by Congressman um, Jim Jordan. And to be really clear, he is, um, he's basically making the point, uh, Jim Jordan's making the point, that, uh, as it ties into the Mueller report, you found lots of people to accuse of lying you accuse people, you know, it's a crime, it's a felony to lie to the FBI. So Mueller accused and got con uh, indictments and convictions for people for lying to the FBI. Why isn't 
Why didn't you attempt to get people who were the original people helping to concoct this entire hoax? So I want to ask Matt, the wonderful producer, if we could play uh, Jim Jordan's question on the floor of the House today to Robert Mueller. Director, the FBI interviewed Joseph Mifsud on February 10th, 2017. In that interview, Mr. Mifsud lied. You point this out on page 193, volume one, Mifsud denied. Mifsud also falsely stated. In addition, Mifsud omitted. Three times he lied to the FBI, yet you didn't charge him with the crime. Excuse me, did you say one, I'm sorry, did you say 193? Volume one, 193. He lied three times, you pointed out in the report. Why didn't you charge him with the crime? I can't get into uh, internal deliberations with regard to who would or would not be. Uh, Charge a lot uh, of other people for making false statements. Let's remember this. Let's remember this. In 2016, the FBI did something they probably haven't done before. They spied on two American citizens associated with a presidential campaign, George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. With Carter Page, they went to the FISA court. They used the now famous dossier as part of the reason they were able to get the warrant and spy on Carter Page for a better part of a year. With Mr. Papadopoulos, they didn't go to the court. They used human sources. All kinds of, from about the moment Papadopoulos joins the Trump campaign, you got all these people all around the world starting to swirl around him. Names like Halper, Downer, Mifsud, Thompson, meeting in Rome, London, all kinds of places. The FBI even sent even sent a lady posing as somebody else, went by the name Azra Turk, even dispatched her to London to spy on Mr. Papadopoulos. In one of these meetings, Mr. Papadopoulos is talking to a foreign diplomat, and he tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. That diplomat then contacts the FBI, and the FBI opens an investigation based on that fact. You point this out on page one of the report. July 31st, 2016, they open the investigation based on that piece of information. Papadopoulos tells the diplomat, Russians have dirt on Clinton. Diplomat tells the FBI. What I'm wondering is, who told Papadopoulos? How'd he find out? I can't get into the evidentiary file. Yes, you can, because you wrote about it. You gave us the answer. Page 192 of the report, you tell us who told him. Joseph Mifsud. Joseph Mifsud's a guy who told Papadopoulos. The mysterious professor who lives in Rome and London, works at teaching two different universities. This is the guy who told Papadopoulos. He's the guy who starts it all. And when the FBI interviews him, he lies three times. And yet you don't charge him with a crime. You charge Rick Gates for false statements. You charge Paul Manafort for false statements. You charge Michael Cohen with false statements. You charge Michael Flynn, a three-star general, with false statements. But the guy who puts the country through this whole saga starts it all for three years we've lived this now he lies and you guys don't charge him and i'm curious as to why well i can't get into it and uh and it's obvious i think that we can't get into charging decisions i have to tell you folks i want to let i wanted to play that first and then make my second overarching point think of the absurdity of this hearing the hearing is about the Mueller investigation and report into Trump-Russia collusion. While every person sitting in that room, every reporter who's covered this story knows that Hillary Clinton, her campaign, the Democrat National Committee hired Fusion GPS to have Christopher Steele concoct a false Russian dossier, a fa- just a, fa- a fairy tale fantasy story of Russia-Trump collusion, put in, the, put in the Russian dossier, and then what you're just hearing Jim Jordan recount, you had, it appears to be the CIA and John Brennan having helped to set this up, but you had an innocent American citizen, Papadopoulos, being fed stories by an FBI-sponsored guy, an FBI person they've asked that they've assigned, this Mifsud, to go and plant the seed in Papadopoulos's mind, or in the a story that you know, the Russians have Hillary's emails, and then Papadopoulos says it to somebody else, and they turn around, and that somebody else is involved in going back to the FBI and saying, hey, I think that someone connected with the Trump campaign might have something about Hillary's emails. So you have CIA, FBI involvement orchestrated 
with the British, the Australian, and now the Italian government appears to have been involved, or various agents within inside the Italian government, the Australian and the British, you have foreign collusion by the Democrats, by the leftists trying to prevent Trump from winning the campaign, including with Hillary Clinton, coming up with a Russian dossier with her collusion and connection, paying some guy to write up a fantasy story. And then that became the basis for the investigation, the, the FISA warrants and the Carter Page and spying on your opponent. All of that was collusion and, and, and just an astonishing, breathtaking, uh, just audacious plan by people inside the FBI to be involved in trying to destroy a presidential candidate, an opponent of a, of a presidential candidate. All those foreign governments, everyone in the room knows, and we're still sitting here trying to talk about whether or not, even though Mueller investigated and spent millions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of hours, probably millions of hours all told, him and his whole team, and came up with zip, zero, nada, nothing, and we're all, they're all sitting in that room trying to act serious about, yes, can we really possibly come up with a case? Okay, there is no case for you know collusion or conspiracy between Trump and the Russians, we're all going to ignore the elephant or the donkey in the room, which is the Hillary uh, and the DNC and Trump and the um, Fusion GPS and all those other players. We're going to ignore all of that. But doggone it, if we're not going to, and, and then, then their involvement with the Australian government and the British government and the, and the Italian government, all of that, we all know this, but we're going to sit back and talk about was it really Trump-Russia collusion? So what you just heard Jim Jordan say in that, in that little summary of what happened is what America heard today. They heard this reality that indeed this is a crazy, this was unbelievably audacious coup attempt. Attempt even before Trump won the election and continuing after he won the election to bring down the president. Collusion with foreign agents, collusion with foreign governments by the American left, by people inside the DOJ and the FBI and apparently the CIA. And we're all going to sit here and talk about the issue is really whether or not, you know, there's possibility of charging Trump with obstruction because he got sick of being falsely accused of this whole Trump-Russia silliness that the left concocted. And that is, that is the, when I say this is just this unbelievable, unbelievable double standard cooked up by the left. Um, that is just a, um, that Jim Jordan describing how come all these other people, anyone affiliated with Trump, got charged with lying and misused the core person that kicked all of it off working for the FBI. And he lied. Mueller acknowledges he lied. No mention of him. Now, he's not going to be prosecuted for anything. One other point that came out of the hearing today was, I, I use the expression, prejudice on parade, Mueller's prejudice on parade. I want to play a clip, have the wonderful Matt, the producer, play a, a clip. This is by another, Texas, Texas was good today. John Ratcliffe, great set of questions he asked Mueller in the House Judiciary Committee. Here you go, John Ratcliffe. All right, now in explaining the special counsel did not make what you called a traditional prosecution or declination decision, the report on the bottom of page two of volume two reads as follows. The evidence we obtained about the president's actions and intent presents difficult issues that prevent us from conclusively determining that no criminal conduct occurred. Accordingly, while this report does not conclude that the president committed a crime, it also does not exonerate him. You said at all times the special counsel team operated under, was guided by, and followed Justice Department policies and principles. So which DOJ policy or principle sets forth a legal standard that an investigated person is not exonerated if their innocence from criminal conduct is not conclusively determined? Can you repeat the last part of that question? Yeah. Which DOJ policy or principle set forth a legal standard that an investigated person is not exonerated if their innocence from criminal conduct is not conclusively determined? Uh, Where does that language come from, Director? Where is the DOJ policy that says that? Can you, let me make it easier. Can you give me an example other than Donald Trump where the Justice Department determined that an investigated person was not exonerated because I, their I, innocence was not conclusively determined? I, I, I cannot, but this is a unique okay, situation. Okay, well, I, you can't, time is short. I've got five minutes. Let's just leave it at, you can't find it because I'll tell you why. It doesn't exist. 
The special counsel's job, nowhere does it say that you were to conclusively determine Donald Trump's innocence or that the special counsel report should determine whether or not to exonerate him. It's not in any of the documents. It's not in your appointment order. It's not in the special counsel regulations. It's not in the OLC opinions. It's not in the justice manual. And it's not in the principles of federal prosecution. Nowhere do those words appear together because respectfully, respectfully, director, it was not the special counsel's job to conclusively determine Donald Trump's innocence or to exonerate him because the bedrock principle of our justice system is a presumption of innocence. It exists for everyone. Everyone is entitled to it, including sitting presidents. And because there is a presumption of innocence, prosecutors never, ever need to conclusively determine it. Now, Director, the special counsel applied this inverted burden of proof that I can't find and you said doesn't exist anywhere in the department policies and you used it to write a report and the very first line of your report the very first line of your report says and you as you read this morning it authorizes the special counsel to provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the prosecution or declination decisions reached by the special counsel that's the very first word of your report right that's correct here's the problem director the special counsel didn't do that on volume one, you did. On vol volume two, with respect to potential obstruction of justice, the special counsel made neither a prosecution decision or a declination decision. You made no decision. You told us this morning and in your report that you made no determination. So respectfully, director, you didn't follow the special counsel regulations. It clearly says, write a confidential report about decisions reached. Nowhere in here does it say, write a report about decisions that weren't reached. You wrote 180 pages, 180 pages about decisions that weren't reached, about potential crimes that weren't charged or decided. And respectfully, respectfully, by doing that, you managed to violate every principle and the most sacred of traditions about prosecutors not offering extra prosecutorial analysis about potential crimes that aren't charged. Folks, that was among the most important points of the entire hearing this morning, among the most important, and I'm going to run out of time here, so I'm going to come back and talk more about that tomorrow. But in summary, what Congressman Ratcliffe is saying to Mueller is, to, to Investigator Mueller, and, and with respect to his report is, you shifted the burden of proof. In America, every individual is entitled to the presumption of innocence. The prosecutor has to say, has to start every case with the person, recognizing the person being investigated has a presumption of innocence. What he really was doing there, what Congressman Ratcliffe did was to call out Mueller's stunt in this volume two of his report, where he addressed the allegations called uh, whether or not President Trump obstructed justice throughout, it was like throwing you know garbage against the wall, see what will stick, throwing in a bunch of things and saying, well, maybe this, but I can't find, reach a conclusion, maybe that. His job was to investigate and decide whether or not something should be prosecuted or whether he had to decline to prosecute. Instead, Mueller chose the tact of throwing junk out there in that second volume of the Mueller report inviting Congress to engage in impeachment because it, which is he is exactly right Ratcliffe is exactly right what what Mueller did is a grotesque violation of the concept of the presumption of innocence shifting the burden to Trump to have to somehow say no I know he's saying all these things but and he couldn't reach a conclusion in any of them but somehow it leaves in the mind's eye that Trump really was not innocent even though that is what he was what the conclusion should have been from the prosecutor was there's no basis to prosecute this if there was a basis to prosecute alleged um, obstruction of justice, then Mueller should have done it. He didn't have it. Instead of just saying, I don't have it, I'm done, he chose a smarmy method of trying to entice Congress to engage in an investigation related to impeachment. And folks, I'm almost out of time today. I want to tell you very quickly why these stories we talked about today matter to you. We talked about today, uh, Mueller exposed days, damages. The, the hearing today is the latest skirmish in the Democrats' ongoing coup attempt against our president. Mueller appears to be a willing deep state conspirator. He was a figurehead in this investigation, chosen because of his name and his undeserved reputation for integrity. Do not be duped by his confusion and weakness in testifying. 
it is not bumbling innocence. He was in the middle of cooking up this report to hurt Trump. My June 11th interview with Sidney Powell, now Lieutenant General Michael Flynn's counsel, is on America Can We Talk's YouTube channel. It gives an in-depth look into the Mueller and his high-ranking corrupt sidekick Andrew Weissman, Mueller's prejudice on parade, key takeaways. The Mueller report turned the presumption of innocence we were just talking about on its head. We have... Uh, the Mueller report turned the presumption of innocence upside down. You can't indict, but you can't exonerate. This is not a standard. You don't get to say as a prosecutor, well, I'm not going to indict, but I'm not going to exonerate. It's exactly what he did. Unprecedented, unprincipled. We can go to the next slide. Mueller's unjust double standard. Key takeaways. Mueller's kid gloves treatment of Joseph Massoud gives away the fraud of his entire investigation. Massoud is where the lie the Russians have Hillary's emails started. He's not a friend of Russia. He's a Western intelligence asset. He was part of the setup of Papadopoulos, probably possibly directed by John Brennan. He concealed or lied to the FBI about his role, Mifsud did, but Mueller didn't prosecute. And on the last one on Mueller, Attorney General Barr told the House, this I didn't even get to today, the basic thing, Mueller was told by Barr, the Barr Attorney General Barr sent a letter to the House saying, you know what, uh, you cannot, um, uh, he can't testify about anything except what's in the Mueller report. And the Democrats made a big fuss and complained about that and said, that's terrible. You know, Barr shouldn't get to say we can ask Mueller. Turns out Mueller urged Barr to send that letter. Mueller didn't want to have to talk about anything what's in his report. Obviously, he's not feeling up to it and able to withstand the pressure. Um, I'm going to go to the last slide. We've got to roll. Iran's calculated aggression. Reminder, the world is still a dangerous place. Thank you, Claire Lopez, for elaborating. Iran remains dangerous. It's this out-of-touch malocracy ruling largely against the will of the Persian people. Tattered, weak economy. Mullahs are desperate to get relief from the sanctions. Trump has not taken the bait to engage militarily, which could shift EU opinion toward Iran and against us. But he will. Trump will stand up for U.S. interests. And I actually think the new British prime minister has little sympathy toward Islamic extremists in the mix now. So we'll see where this all goes. And folks... This is America Can We Talk. I'm here every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Come back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. And remember to always speak up for America because America matters. America, can we talk? Truth about America. Can you-